I think all of us realize that it's a very thin blue line that stands between us and the evil in this culture that would do us harm, and we are very grateful for that. Last week, I, I spoke about this evil. Not a topic we typically deal a lot with, but I did. I spoke about an evil that is more evil than we can know. But I also spoke of the hope that is ours because we have a Jesus who is stronger than we can imagine. It was a very simple message, two points. Evil is more evil than we can know, but Jesus is stronger than we can imagine. So I was surprised when I received more comments on that sermon than any other sermon I have ever preached in my entire ministry. And it caused me to reflect on that. Perhaps it's because I put to words what I think many of us and more and more of us are feeling. That there's something that's desperately broken in our culture. Something that too few people are willing to call what it is. And that is evil. An evil influence on our culture. We tend to be too cautious, too tentative, too woke. And we need to wake up. We, we need to, as people of God, we need to tell the truth about our enemy out there, but also, and more importantly, to proclaim the hope that is ours in Christ, a hope in a powerful Jesus who steps into these unclean places, a Jesus who is not intimidated by any of it, a, a Jesus who cleanses what the world calls defiling. That has to be our proclamation of the gospel in this season and in this time. And perhaps we're finally reaching a point of being tired of living as if our Christian convictions are something to be ashamed of, something to be hidden under a basket. Maybe we are longing together increasingly for Jesus to show up in a powerful way. Well, may it be so. And certainly as we look to our text this morning, He shows up in a powerful way. Last week we saw the powerful Jesus in dominion over a rebellious storm, in dominion over a legion of demons. And today we see that same Jesus who triumphs over illness and even over death. We are also going to discover something else. We're going to discover two people. We're going to meet two people who had a saving faith that released that power. Saving faith that released that power. Don't you want to be that kind of a church, a church that is inhabited by people who have this saving faith that releases the power of Jesus upon our culture? I want us to be that kind of church. And if you do too, if you want to be one of those people, then put your ears on because Jesus has something to say to us this day. We continue in our journey through the Gospel of Luke. We are still in chapter 8, magnificent chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 40. They have just returned back from the other side of the lake. They have come to probably Capernaum. And this is where we pick it up. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and as he went, the people pressed around him. This is the word of the Lord. As we were looking at this text together in my life group a couple of weeks ago, one of our life group members said, you know, the only thing Jesus doesn't seem to have been good at was crowd control. Because everywhere he went, the crowds pressed in on him. That's the language we see here. He gets back to this side of the lake, and we are told the people pressed around him. The little literal Greek word for pressed is choked. 
As in the same word that Jesus used when he told the parable of the sower about how the weeds choke the uh, seedlings out. The crowds were just choking Jesus. They were so close to him. But suddenly those choking crowds part because up walks, making their way forward, is one of the most important men in their community. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, which meant he ran the place. He maintained the building. He protected the sacred scrolls. He lined up which rabbis would be speaking, which lay readers would be leading. Everything revolved around this guy. It is no exaggeration to say he was probably the most influential and respected man in the community. And now as he pushes way through that choking crowd, we see tears streaming down his face. And to our shock, we watch as he falls into the dirt at the feet of Jesus. And we wonder, what were the crowds shocked? Were his parishioners shocked to see this esteemed leader behaving in what seemed so undignified a matter? He couldn't have cared less. Because in addition to being the ruler of the synagogue, he was something else, something even more important to him. He was a daddy. He was an Abba. And he had this beautiful 12-year-old girl, his only child, and she was at death's door. How many of you men have daughters? Is there anything you wouldn't do for your little girls? Not a thing. Not one of us. My, my Rachel still calls me daddy, and it's the sweetest word I can hear. There's nothing I would not do for my little girl. I spoke this last week with a man who is a part of our church family, a young woman who grew up in our church. She's now married, 34 years old. She, she was pregnant with twins when they discovered a large tumor in her brain. And so they, they, the twins have been delivered safely, and her surgery has been scheduled. But I, as I listened to this dad's anguished voice on the phone, I couldn't help but imagine this is exactly the tone of voice that Jairus brought when he came to Jesus that day. Because we would do anything for our little girls, including throwing ourselves at the feet of a wandering rabbi. That's what Jairus does. He falls on his face and he pleads for Jesus' help. And what is sweet and remarkable is Jesus doesn't need any more pleading. Without even a word of comment, we, say, we read, Jesus starts on his way. He follows his, on his way home, making his way, jostling through the, the choking crowds, Jesus goes. And can you imagine the, the hope that began to swell up in, in Jairus' heart? The miracle-working rabbi was coming with him. This daughter, his daughter was going to be well. She would be healed. It, it was all going to be fine until it wasn't fine. Let's, let's continue in our reading. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of His garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before Jesus, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
go in peace. I used to watch Batman when I was a kid, and I hated the end of every show because every show ended the same way. And those of you boomers, you'll remember this. It was always a cliffhanger. We could not find out how Batman and Robin were going to escape from the evil clutches of the Joker or the Penguin or whomever until next week, same bat time, same bat channel. You were just left hanging. And that was this, but in real life. Because suddenly Jairus and his daughter, they disappear from the scene. They just disappear. And we are left hanging about what's going to happen to this little girl because someone else has now walked onto the stage. It is a woman who for 12 years has hemorrhaged. In fact, when you think about it, in the year that Jairus' daughter was born into the world, the 12-year-old was born into the world, this woman was forced out of her world. Because a woman in her condition was considered ritually unclean. Anyone who touched her or who was touched by her was defiled. For 12 years she was ostracized and shamed. And now she was penniless. She was like a leper. She was forced to withdraw from society, from her family, from her friends. And she was utterly and bitterly forsaken and alone. Last week we watched as Jesus sailed to the other side of the lake to a region called the Decapolis, which was an unclean land. I showed you all the ways in which it was unclean. They had Gentiles there, for one thing. They had tombs all over the place. They had pigs that they were growing. They had Roman soldiers, and they had a bunch of evil spirits. That's about as unclean as you can get. No self-respecting rabbi would set foot there. If he did, he would be defiled and unable to do his work. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus steps right into it. Jesus sanitized the unclean. Jesus redeemed the defiled. Now that they were on the other side of the lake, the Jewish side of the lake, surely things would be better, easier, right? Cleaner and Safer and more appropriate, like Gig Harbor. But Jesus is thrust right back into uncleanness again. Only this time he doesn't see it coming. It's a sneak attack. It's a sneak attack. Every Jewish man wore a prayer garment that had tassels hanging from the bottom of his robe. And this woman was convinced that if she just touched the fringe of his garment, she would be made clean. And she was so desperate to try this, she wasn't even going to ask permission. She didn't dare. She didn't want to risk him saying no. So she sneaks up from behind him, we are told, and reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. And it looks something like this. This is one of my favorite paintings in the Holy Land. It's in the basement of a church in Magdala, the home of Mary Magdalene on the Sea of Galilee. It's called The Encounter. Do you see what's going on there? The the photographer is at ground level, and there in the white robe is the feet of Jesus. And you see the one hand sneaking out the finger, just reaching out to touch. And you see the light that suggests what happened in that moment. She's rolling the dice, this woman. And in that instant, she is healed. Twelve years of suffering and shame and ostracism. She's healed with a touch. And after she gets her healing, she tries to sneak away in the same way that she snuck up on him in the first place. 
but not a chance. Because Jesus comes to a, a dead stop in the middle of the crowd and he says, who touched me? Who touched me? It seems such a ridiculous question given that the crowd was choking him. And of course, Peter, being Peter, calls that out. He's a little disgusted. He thinks it's a silly question that Jesus pays Peter no mind. He says, someone touched me for I felt my power go out of me. You know what the Greek word for power is right there? Dunamis. What word do we get from dunamis? Dynamite. He says, spiritual dynamite came out of me. Explosive healing power was released by that simple touch. Well, now the woman's trapped. She knows she's been caught and it's pointless to try to escape. And so she falls to the ground before Jesus and she's trembling in fear. And she tells all. She tells how her forbidden touch through that she had been healed. But Jesus isn't ticked. He's not mad. He isn't defiled. He's thrilled. He praises her for her faith. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. My wife and Cindy and I were talking about this text. She said she wanted to touch and run. That was her phrase. I loved it and I captured it. She wanted to touch and run. Kind of a spiritual dine and dash. Get what she wanted and head out before she had to pay the price. She wanted to get her healing anonymously and then sleek away in secret. But as Cindy pointed out to me, her, her disease would have been gone but not her shame. Right? But Jesus called her out of the crowd and he declared her healed in front of the crowd and then he sent her back into the crowd, in peace, back into her community, her life saved. It is such a wonderful story. Such a vivid, gracious story, isn't it? Again, we see the, the triumph of Jesus' cleansing presence over the defilement of our culture. And everyone is celebrating. Everyone must have been celebrating. Except for one man. Who was the one guy that was not celebrating? Jairus. Can you imagine him there standing to the side, rocking back and forth between his feet, in growing impatience as Jesus takes oh so much time with this woman. And in his head, he is screaming at her, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, you stupid woman. But Jesus wouldn't be hurried. And finally, finally the interruption is over, and it's too late. While Jesus was still speaking, Someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed 
but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Can you imagine the swing of Jairus' emotions that day? One minute there is hope for his daughter. The next minute that hope was dashed. What resentment he must have felt toward that woman. Her interruption cost his daughter her life. And for what he must have been thinking? She's been clean, unclean for 12 years. What difference will 12 years and one hour have made to her? But it made all the difference to his daughter. Too late now. All hope. Gone. But Jesus says, eh, just a second. He says, do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. I shared this text with my friend who has the daughter with a tumor. And he later told me he and his wife read this, and they wept together. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. How can you not fear, mom and dad? How can you not fear in a moment such as that? Do not fear, only believe. At least Jairus had enough faith to follow, to lead Jesus onto his home. And when they arrived there, the mourners were going full tilt. Matthew tells us these were professional mourners. That was a thing. They paid people to come and play flutes and wail and cry. They paid them to do that. And they're in full tilt, and Jesus, he's not deterred. He kicks them all out. He leaves the parent and James and John and Peter. He leads them into the bedroom. And he takes the child's lifeless hand. Again, a defiling act for a rabbi. You touch someone who's dead, you are defiled. Jesus doesn't care. He takes her, her dead hand and then he speaks a word. And Mark captures the actual Aramaic phrase that Jesus uses. He said, Talitha kum, Talitha kum, which can be translated, little lamb, arise. Little lamb, Arise, sweetie, sweetheart, arise. And she does. And Jesus returns the child to her parents and tells them to get her something to eat because apparently being dead works up quite an appetite. And then he says the silliest thing that Jesus might have ever said. Keep it quiet. What I just did, you know, you're raising your dead daughter back to life again, which... All of the mourners are aware. She would, yeah, gee, just let's keep that between us. These four stories over the last two weeks are incredible stories, aren't they? Stories of storms and, and demons and sickness and even death. And they're very different encounters with one common thread throughout all of them. And that thread is Jesus. Powerful Jesus. Lord Jesus. Master Jesus. Luke 8 Luke 8 displays Jesus in all of his glory. He steps into unclean places and instead of being defiled, he sanitizes them with a word, with a touch. He commands what is evil and it has to obey him. He will not be hurried. His timing is his own no matter how we might want to rush him along. The natural world, the spiritual world, the physical world, even the world of the dead, all are subservient to this man. Luke 8 is a bold display of the dynamite power of Jesus Christ. But you know what's different about these stories from last week? Faith. Faith. 
Jesus proved his power last week because despite the lack of faith, he still did what he wished to do. Where is your faith? He asked the terrified disciples after he had rebuked the storm and they were lying there in the bottom of the boat. The demons and legion certainly had no faith. The townspeople not only had no faith, they actually asked him to leave after he had done this incredible miracle. So in the Decapolis, on the other side of the lake, none of Jesus' displays of power over evil occurred because of someone else's faith. Jesus did it just because he can. That's what it means to be Lord. You can do whatever you want to and you don't need anyone's help to pull it off. But the amazing thing about this week's displays of power, we see something different. We see faith. We see faith that releases power. We see faith that stirs Jesus. We, we see faith that halts Jesus in his tracks, that causes him to whirl around in astonishment because he realized dunamis has gone out of him. We see faith that defies the shame of an e evil culture. We see faith that defies the mocking of an evil culture. And it follows Jesus into a quiet place of power and victory and life. What would it look like to have that kind of faith? What would it look like to have that kind of faith in this church? Faith that releases dunamis. Faith that defies culture and custom. Faith that stands against the ridicule of society. Faith that is way more than an anemic, maybe I'll go to church, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll pray today. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll obey Jesus. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll see a work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe I want, won't. What if we had faith that was way more than that? Power releasing faith. There's no formulas, but we'd sure see several principles here that I think we ought to pay attention to. I see four of them. I want to call them out to you. First of all, that kind of power releasing faith seems to be humble. I know I'm a broken record. You hear me talk about this issue of humility a lot, but it's because we are so proud. We're such a proud people. I am such a proud pastor. I do not like what was stirred in me when I heard again and again and again how powerful last week's message was. I do not like what it stirred in me. I do not like how I found myself leaning into that. One of the reasons I have trouble being in the in the hall afterwards and talking to people. You know, I've discovered long ago it is not good for my soul to hear those kinds of things a lot. So I'm a proud pastor and I am in good company because I have proud people. We are a proud culture. But power releasing faith is not proud. It is humble. The characters in all four stories, they bow down in humility before Jesus. Whether they like it or not, the wind and the waves, they bow before Jesus. The demoniac bows before Jesus. They have no choice. That's how powerful Jesus is. But today, dignified Jairus chooses to bow before Jesus. And the bleeding woman chooses to bow at the feet of Jesus. I think dynamite faith starts with the deep conviction of who Jesus really is and of our place before him, which is on our face maybe even literally at times. When was the last time you knelt as part of your prayer or worship time before the Master? Was there ever a time when you were literally down on your face before the Lord? 
We are just leaving the season of Epiphany that celebrates the coming of the Magi to call upon the Christ child. We are told when those men, those dignified, rich foreigners, when they showed up and walked into the room, this is what we are told they did. In their brocaded robes and all of their wealth and power, they lay down with their faces in the dirt because they knew that they were in the presence of greatness. I wonder if that's our heart. We are a proud people. We're a proud culture. We are a proud nation, perhaps a proud church, proud community. And pride goeth before the fall. Dynamite releasing faith starts with us on our face before Jesus in humility. So that's one. Here's the second thing I see in these stories. Power releasing faith is courageous. It's courageous. It took courage for that woman to defy convention, to defy the rules of their proper society, to defy the loathing and the scorn of the people that she knew would come if they caught her reaching out to Jesus. It took courage for Jairus, who was a prominent religious leader, to fall down before Jesus in front of his parishioners. And what about when they came to his house? These were professional mourners. These are people who are paid to wail over the dead. They know what dead looks like. And when Jesus says, oh, she's not dead, They're, she's only sleeping. They did a very dangerous thing. What did they do? They laughed at him. Yeah, I do not want to be found laughing at Jesus. But Jairus in his courage, ignored their scorn and their mocking, and that took guts. We live in a society that laughs at Jesus. We are surrounded by mockers of our faith. Do we have the courage to, to believe in Jesus in the face of such scorn? So, if we want to have the faith that releases power, it has to be humble, it has to be courageous, it has to be persistent. Persistent. Jairus was determined to present his child to Jesus. Nothing would stop him. And he didn't give up. Even when she was dead, he didn't give up. The bleeding woman would not give up. She knocked down every obstacle in her way. She would not be, be deterred. Powerful faith is persistent faith. And that's what Jesus taught in his parables again and again. He said, you just keep pounding on heaven's doors. With your prayers of faith, you keep pounding on heaven's doors until finally you just wear God out with your persistence. Sounds not very holy, but it is exactly what Jesus taught. You just keep praying, praying, praying. Every morning, I pray three things when I come to my first moments of consciousness, when I wake up from sleep, before I lift my head from the, from the pillow, I have three things that I pray for every morning. And I am determined I am going to keep pounding on God's door until He answers those prayers. Never, 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 never give up. Be persistent. So, power-releasing faith is humble, it is courageous, it is persistent. And finally, it is intimate. We find intimacy in this story. This is a little bit different, but I couldn't help but notice it. There, there's great intimacy between Jesus and all of the people in this story. Four times, for instance, inventions that the woman touched him. One would have 
told the story, but four times it calls, calls that to our attention. Twice we are told that the crowds were pressing on Jesus, not just once. And of course, when he gets to the girl's deathbed, he defiles himself by touching her hand. People longed to be close to Jesus. They drew near him. They touched him and were touched by him. How about you? Is your relationship with Jesus intimate in that way? Because if your relationship with Jesus is distant or cool or aloof or controlled or indifferent, why should we be surprised when your faith doesn't release power? If you don't pray regularly, if you don't read God's Word regularly, if you don't worship with His people regularly, if you don't obey what He tells you to do regularly, if you consider all this spiritual intimacy stuff to be excessive, why should you be surprised that He doesn't seem near in times of your greatest need? How do we have a faith that releases dynamite, dunamis, you know? It starts perhaps with humility, with courage, with persistence, intimacy. Those are signs of a dynamite faith. I have watched with great interest the happenings in Asbury University in Kentucky. I hope you have. It fascinates me and excites me. For 24-7, round the clock, kids have been gathered for worship and prayer. And it's been going on now for more than two weeks. They had to cancel their classes one week because they wouldn't leave chapel to go, to go to school. You know, we have trouble getting kids to go to church when they head for college. These folks can't, they're having trouble getting kids out of church so that they go to college. The word spread and people began to arrive from all around the world to get a taste of this anointing. They want a taste of this. More than 50,000 people descended upon that little town. They, they had to move the, the meetings off-site. And now I understand that similar awakenings are occurring in three other universities. Speed the day. Multiply the tribe. Because so many people are longing to experience the genuine power and intimacy and presence of Jesus. This is what revival looks like. And we need revival. Our community needs revival. Our state needs revival. Our nation needs revival. Our church needs revival. It can't be manufactured. Revival is a work of the Spirit, a providential work of the Spirit. But perhaps revival could begin with our own hearts, our humble, courageous, persistent, intimate faith in Jesus that begins to release the dynamite power that he wants to pour out over us and over this community and over his world. Maranatha. Do you know that word? It was one of the earliest Christian prayers. It means, oh, come, Lord. Come, Lord. Maranatha. Say it with me. Maranatha. Say it with me. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring your revival, bring your power to this place, to this people at this time. Maranatha. Would you join me as we, as we ask for this blessing, this anointing? Our Master, our Lord, 
our Savior, our King of kings, we bow before you in humility. We own that you are the Lord and Savior of all, the creator of all things. We declare your power over every evil force, every, every machination of the enemy. You are greater than all of that. You step into the unclean and you make it clean. You step into that which would defile and you redeem it. And so we pray for revival. We pray for your powerful spirit. We pray that we might have faith that turns your spirit loose. A, a, faith, that, a faith that astounds you. A faith that causes you to stop in your tracks and wheel around. A faith that says, who touched me? Who touched me there in Chapel Hill? Who touched me? Because I felt my power go out of me. Lord, I pray that we will surprise you again and again in these coming days and weeks and months. I, I pray that we will reach out, encourage and touch the, the hem of your garment and that we will hear you say, ah, you touched me. We long for revival. We long for you to do what only you can do. We long for you to turn the laughter back on the mockers, to turn death back on the dead. To, we, we long for you to, to turn the demonic back into the abyss and to do what only you can do. And may it just start here, Lord. May we cry out to you. And as you see our heart, our humility, our courage, our persistence, our longing to be close to you, may you respond and say, here I am. Let's do something together. So we pray this in the matchless name of our master.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.
He's always been Waymaker. 